Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 1. Single verse I'm going to look at today. And I do not want to discourage you into thinking it's going to take us 24 years to get through Ecclesiastes at this rate. We will be working through at a fairly good clip through the book. This is an important for, uh, truth for us to see there. One that's easily overlooked. Where he says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Christian, you are daily bombarded by so many different things. There's a lot of things going on in your world, in your life. And not only things that are swirling about you, that go on in your life and your family, but things from outside the world. They can be pressures. They can be, uh, you know, hey, listen to me. Watch this. Look at this. Read this. Um, that tempt us and can distract us and take us away. It's just kind of unending. And then there's always things that we have to do. Not only that, but we have our sin nature. As Christians, we still have a sin nature that has a hankering, a longing, a hungering for sin that gravitates toward that. And we all have our own particular temptations, things that we particularly struggle with that you other Christians might not, but you do, and we all have those different things. These things come and go. They change. They adapt. Uh, but at root, they're all the same. Some of these things can be interesting and stimulating. Some of them might actually be entertaining and helpful. But when it comes down to it, they really do not give the light that you need to live a life that pleases and follows the Lord. On your phone, well, not on everybody's phone right now, but on many of you, many of you on your phone right now, maybe your bookshelf at home, maybe your bedstand, uh, maybe on your bookshelf or um, wherever you would keep it, your dresser, there is a book that has unchanging truth, the Bible. You have at least one copy of the scriptures. Some of us who shall remain nameless because I don't want to incriminate myself have dozens of them. And you might say, why would you have dozens of those? Well, if you're an avid fisherman, do you have just one fishing pole? No. If uh, you're a mechanic, do you satisfy yourself with just one kind of tool? I mean, you only need one hammer, right? And one wrench. I have seen the tool supplies of some of the men here. You do not have just one tool. Well, these are my tools particularly. But that book of unchanging truth, you know what that does, Christian? It shines a floodlight on the path of your life. And that helps you to find and see dangers. And it also helps you to see where you need to go. An essential, if not a primary ministry that I have as your pastor is given in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, where I need to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And the Bible is essential for that. You cannot live life and you cannot minister apart from Scripture. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it is all that's needed to live a life and to serve him faithfully. I need to teach you what to believe. I need to teach you how to live. But that's not all. I also need to teach you how to accurately handle this book. What if, what if 
uh, maybe I shouldn't say what if, but when, what will you do when the pastor is not around? When he is no longer existing and you don't have one? You need to be able to look to the scriptures. And I can't be there all throughout your day anyway this week. But you always have God's word. As I said, it can be on your bedstand. It can be on a shelf. It can be on your phone. And it's something that you can always go to. Where else should it be? It should be in your heart, shouldn't it? Your word I have hid in my heart for what purpose, what aim? That I will not sin against you. Yeah. So I need to teach you how to accurately handle the scriptures. On the top of the back of your bulletin there, the thing I want us to see from today, from Ecclesiastes 1.1, is that knowing the author and his times is essential for understanding what he wrote. Who was he? What were the times in which he lived? The context, the historical and the theological background. Let's look first of all at the author of this book. He describes himself, verse 1, as he calls himself as the preacher. The idea here, as I talked briefly about two weeks ago, this is someone who speaks to a group of people that have assembled themselves together. This people has assembled themselves together. They've gathered together to hear, to hear truth. Solomon did this. You could write down 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. When the temple was going to be uh, dedicated to the Lord. It says in 1 Kings 8, 1, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and the heads of the tribes that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. So the idea of a preacher here is that he is the speaker of an assembly. He is the speaker of an assembly. We think of a preacher as, you know, preaching. He's the speaker speaking to a group. Well, that said, which is easier to say, preacher or speaker to an assembly or a group? Well, preacher. So we'll use that particularly. You're there in chapter 12. Look at chapter 12 and verse 9. It says here, moreover, because the preacher was wise, look at this, he still taught the people knowledge. And the idea of what's being said there is he did this constantly. He did this constantly. He was constantly teaching the people knowledge. Once in a while, I will give a message and somebody will ask me for my sermon notes. Or they want to listen to it online. That makes us available, makes those things available. Maybe you missed something or something that was said was just really helpful. Um, I wonder if that's what happened here with Ecclesiastes. Solomon spoke to an assembled group of Jews, gave this message, and the Spirit moved him to write it down. This is what he did constantly. Back to chapter 1, and verse 1. What else can we learn about Solomon? He's the son of David, king in Jerusalem. What do you need to know from this? I would say the first thing you need to remember is he grew up in a godly home. His dad was David, a man after God's own heart. Solomon grew up hearing God's word, learning God's word, seeing it lived out. 
several times in the Psalms, David says that he waited for the, to just to go into the tabernacle to pray and to seek the Lord. Solomon saw that. He grew up with that. He had a godly dad. Solomon grew up in a nation, uh, the only nation that God set his blessing on. Did you ever think about that? Out of the hundreds of nations and thousands of nations that have existed in human history, there is only one nation that God specifically has called his people. The nation of Israel. God gave them his perfect law. That was their constitution. And there was no debate over what the lawgiver said about his law. God gave them that, that law, and as they obeyed it, they would experience his blessings. And as they disobeyed it, they would experience his curses. And we read about that in Solomon's prayer of dedication to the temple. Lord, when your people have disobeyed you, they cry out to you from this place, hear from heaven and forgive. Remember that several weeks ago when we read that? This king, Solomon, he knew Israel's history. He knew Israel's theology. From Deuteronomy 18, we know every king was supposed to take the law and make himself a copy of it. He was to make himself a copy of it, to be reading it continually. In other words, he needed to know his constitution. He needed to uphold it, to defend it, to practice it, to put it into effect. Solomon also had great God-given wisdom. Remember when God appeared to Solomon at night? What do you want, Solomon? He didn't ask for riches or long life or the, 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 the success in battle. He asked God, give me wisdom that I can effectively rule your people. And God blessed him with that. God gave him that wisdom. And wisdom is the ability to skillfully and accurately apply God's truth to life. It's a definition I've repeated many times over the years. Is the ability to skillfully and accurately, from Solomon's standpoint, apply the Mosaic Law to everyday life. We need wisdom as well. It's not just limited to the Mosaic Law, though. It's all scripture. One uh, other thing I want us to see from David, or from Solomon here, being king in Jerusalem, he was king. Have you ever fantasized, what would I do if I won a million dollars? What would I do if I was president of the United States? I'd resign. What would you do if you had this position of authority, unlimited wealth, and all these smarts? You know what Solomon did with it? He used his position and he used his wisdom to teach God's people. What a lesson to learn there. He used his position and he used his wisdom to teach God's people. Now, I kept saying this is Solomon, but it doesn't say Solomon. Just describes him as the preacher. And I'm going to come back to this has to be Solomon. Why does this have to be Solomon? Well, I'll give you two reasons why I think this has to be Solomon. Solomon was the only one of David's sons to rule in Jerusalem. 
And what does it say in chapter 1, verse 1? The king in Jerusalem, the son of David. A second reason is that there were only two kings of David that ruled in Jerusalem. Let me back up. There were only two kings of Israel who ruled in Jerusalem. You say, what about Saul? He didn't rule from Jerusalem. David conquered Jerusalem. Only two kings, David and Solomon. This has to be Solomon. This is the person who wrote this book. We have a title for the book, number two. The Words of. This is not the only book that begins this way. Several other books in the Old Testament. The Words of Amos, the sheep herder of Tekoa. This is the title of the book. Let's look, first of all, why did he wrote that? Why, why did he write this book? Why did he wrote, why he wrote what he did? Well, the idea of words here, and you might be saying, oh, pastor, he didn't have anything better to do, so he got his Hebrew lexicon out and really dug in. No, the idea here is teaching. The teaching, that's the idea here. He wrote these words to help God's people know how to live. That's wisdom. He gave this teaching to help God's people to know how to live correctly, skillfully, apply the law to everyday life. How did he prepare to write this teaching? That's number two. How did he prepare? How did he put the book together? Let's go to chapter 12 then. How did he put this book together? Verse 9. Several things I want you to see here to better understand the author. Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he, he taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered. I'll just read the rest. But he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. He pondered. He gave careful thought to this book. He gave careful thought to it. He didn't just randomly write things down. I think it was maybe elementary school, maybe junior high. I don't remember when exactly. I remember a teacher said, we're going to do a writing exercise today. We're going to call it stream of consciousness writing. Just write whatever. No organization, just write whatever. Boy, my thing that I wrote had no coherence. There's nothing holding it together. It was just a, a jumbled mess of, and then I want to get the snake, and then I want to eat strawberries, and it just made no sense at all. No pondering, that's the point. I still don't know what the point of that exercise was. Maybe some of you English majors can tell me. Solomon gave careful thought to this book. Also in verse 9, it says he sought out. He sought out. He put effort into this. He put effort in saying the right words and making sure the right thing was said. He put effort into it for the right things to say. I firmly believe if there was a Webster's Dictionary for the Hebrew language available for Solomon, he would have had it and used it. If he had a Roger's Thesaurus, he would have used it for the Hebrew language. By the way, those are my two favorite tools in writing and speaking. Webster's Dictionary and Roger's Thesaurus. What else? He pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. He put it all together so his message was understandable. With the book of Ecclesiastes, he sought out many proverbs 
And he put it all together so it would make sense, a coherent whole. Now, the book of Proverbs, those are pretty much just thrown out there, aren't they? Okay. Kind of think about Proverbs like using a shotgun. Ecclesiastes is more using a rifle. He's aiming at one thing, and he's putting all these things. And instead of shooting them all out, they're all working to accomplish this singular aim and intent. Verse 10. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. The content that he put was appropriate. It was correct. It was just right. Just right. These proverbs are wise, compact statements. They had to be acceptable words, just right. Words of truth. And look at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. In other words, Solomon didn't just throw a bunch of things together. He worked hard at teaching the Lord's people. Now, why am I taking the time to help you see this? This should emphasize the value of this book. It should emphasize to you the importance of this book. It should emphasize the necessity of the book of Ecclesiastes for you. There's something else I want to do. Now we're mired in the book of Ecclesiastes at this moment. I want to step back and get the bigger picture. I want us to also see something else that was going on with Solomon writing this. So he had these different proverbs. He had all this knowledge of all the world. You read Kings and Chronicles to learn of Solomon's vast knowledge and wisdom. Thousands and thousands of Proverbs, knowledge of the animal world, all this stuff. He took from these various sources and he wrote this down. But there's something else that was going on. And two passages to write down here would be 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.21. 2 Peter 3, sorry, 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16. And 2 Peter 1.21. While Solomon was writing this book, the Holy Spirit was guiding him so that the, he, he wrote exactly the words that God wanted him to write. That's 2 Peter 1.21. The Holy Spirit guided holy men. And not only was the Spirit guiding him, in the selection of just the right words that God wanted written, but God the Spirit also protected Solomon in this book, in this writing, from making any mistakes. He guided him and protected him. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says that is inspiration. This is an inspired book because the Spirit guided and protected Solomon as he's writing and getting all these things so that what he wrote was exactly what God wanted written. How did Solomon communicate this teaching? This is number three, your first blank here today. How did Solomon communicate this teaching? Here we're talking about uh, how he wrote what he did. And the word here today is genre, G-E-N-R-E, -E. genre. Genre is a word that refers to the 
kinds or the types of literature. Let me give you some examples. When I was 12 years old, I was baptized and I was added to the First Baptist Church of Alto, the membership of the First Baptist Church of Alto, Michigan. What kind of genre is that? Autobiography. Let me give you a different genre. A stitch in time saves nine. That is the genre of a proverb. Okay. How about another type of genre? I'm going to be specific here because I don't want to get in trouble. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Sugar is sweet and so are you. Aww. What kind of genre is, what, what's that genre? Poetry. Now, we all know that roses, well, not all roses are red. But I'm just making a generalization. And violets are, for the most part, blue. And sugar is, so I'm making three factual statements. And I'm going to end it all up with another factual statement, okay? I mean, how, how romantic would it be if, for me to say, honey, hydrosulf, H2SO4, hydro, hydrosulfuric acid is dangerous. That's a fact. And I love you too. And that's a fact as well. I mean, that just doesn't go, does it? And so we put in a, poet, a poetic form so that oh, she loves me even more now. One last type of genre that I could use, and there's all kinds of different genres out there. Sodium, it's a metal. And when you put it on water, it floats. When you put that metal on water, it creates hydrogen gas. And if you put enough sodium on metal, it will create and experience an exothermic reaction. You might say, okay, what's that? I remember this from chemistry class. That was the only thing I remember from chemistry class. She put some of that sodium in a little beaker of water and I'm gonna boosh, and I'm like, I gotta buy some sodium. That's cool. Go on YouTube and you can see guys chunk, chucking sodium into a river and it just goes, starts to fizzle and it goes like this exothermic reaction starts to burn up until it's nothing. Solomon uses different genres in Ecclesiastes. This is why I want us to see. He uses different genres to get his point across. Let's look at some of these. Go to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man, by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed it is a frustrating enigma, a vanity, and a grasping for the wind. So what kind of genre was Solomon using here? Autobiography. He's giving a statement, a personal reflection and observation. Verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15, and is another kind of genre. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. This is a proverb. A concise statement expressing wisdom. It gives a picture. It's not giving a, a movie or a film. It's giving a picture. Go to chapter 3 and verse 1. 
another kind of genre. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what was planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, and so on. This genre is that of poetry. Here, Solomon uses poetry. Go to chapter 5. The last type, last genre I'll show you that Solomon uses here to uh, express his message. Chapter 5, verse 1. Here, he doesn't start off by saying, I, the preacher, saw this. I set my heart. And he doesn't give poetry and he doesn't quote a proverb. But he says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. This is the genre of instruction or command. And this is not the only time he uses that. In fact, he closes the book with this. What is your what should be your objective? Fear God and keep his commandments and remember that you'll answer to the Lord. How can and must you learn and profit from Solomon's teaching in the book? That's the third main point I want us to see. How can you profit from Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes? How must you? Understanding the book, the blank here is contexts, plural, okay? Context with an S on it. Contexts, plural. And there's two main kinds of contexts we need to consider. And first is literary context. And you weren't expecting English here today, were you? I'm not teaching English. I'm teaching this is how you read and this is how you understand. You just don't put it in these terms. And I say, how's that? I send you an email or I even send you a text. And if I were to describe, and this is a classic illustration, I were to describe that on our vacation... Uh, to the uh, Pocono Mountains with uh, Ashley and her family and, and our family, that Josiah and I played chess, and Josiah beat me. And you took out that little phrase out of there, Josiah beat pastor. Josiah beat pastor. We need to pray for those greenfields. Was he hurt bad? Oh, emotionally, I was just in trauma, let me tell you. I had him. He was sweating. He knew he was gone. And then I moved my queen, and he said, you're joking, right? You're kidding, right? He even gave me an out. I said, no, why? And then he moved, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm dead. And then the next move... As if it wasn't enough, I put another nail in the coffin, and I really was dead. He beat me, all right, but not physically. What's my point here? You are interpreting an expression in its literary context. You do it all the time. You need to do it when you come to Scripture as well. You need to correctly understand the portion that you're reading in its various contexts. Three Types of literary context I want you to see here. Number one is the immediate context. This is the sentence or the paragraph. The immediate context of the sentence or the paragraph. The immediate context of the sentence or the paragraph. The second type of context is the book itself. 
the Bible book itself. How does this statement fit into the section of the book? How does what Solomon say here, how does that help accomplish his message he's getting across in the entire book? I do this frequently when I'm preaching. Why does Paul say what he does here? And I'll bring it in the context of the larger book. So there's the immediate context, there's the context of the book itself, and then there's the context of all of Scripture, the whole Bible, all Scripture. All Scripture is God's Word. Are there any contradictions in the mind of God? No. Does God make mistakes? No. This is whose word? Who moved these human authors to write? So that was exactly what God wanted written? God did. Everything in Scripture is coherent. There's no contradictions. It's all consistent. If there's a seeming contradiction, you've got to remember it is a seeming one. We're not getting it. And we just need to work harder to understand it and to grasp it. So there's a literary context. Number two, there's the historical, the theological, what's sometimes called the dispensational context. What's this referring to? Well, put my bookmark here in Ecclesiastes 5 because we're going to come back to it in a minute. Um, God created Adam and Eve and on the sixth day of creation, you read there in your Bibles that God gave them the Bible, all 66 books already written out. Is that how it happened? Nope. He gave them some truth. And then he gave Noah more truth. And then he gave Abraham some more truth. And then he gave through Moses a lot of truth. And then the prophets even more truth. And then Jesus came. And a lot of truth. He was truth in the flesh. God gave truth a little bit at a time. The key word here is progressively. He gave truth progressively. Think of stair steps, okay? God gave truth to Adam and Eve and then to Noah and Abraham and, and to Moses and to Jesus, through Jesus to the apostles. He gave this truth that became our scriptures. And he gave this truth for two reasons. First, to regulate the lives of those that this truth was given to. Regulate their lives. And by giving this truth to regulate their lives, this is what they were responsible for. That's the other important word. God progressively gave truth to regulate their lives by which they were responsible for this. I'll give you some examples. God gave truth to Adam and Eve. Uh, what was the truth God gave Adam and Eve? You can eat at any tree you want except for this tree. And that truth had to regulate their lives. Does that truth regulate your life? Are you responsible for not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right now? No, it doesn't apply to you. Does that mean it doesn't matter to you? Oh, it does matter. It is truth that we can learn about God and how we should live before him. We apply the principle. And that's how it is with all the Old Testament here, okay? Israel was regulated and responsible to God for the truth that he gave through Moses on Mount Sinai. They're responsible for going up to Jerusalem three times a year. 
worshiping only through the Levitical priests and only the invisible God. Do you remember what Jeroboam did? He set up different altars with metal idols, with priests of his own choosing that weren't Levites, at times of his own choosing. And it says that even there, he thought of it on his own, whatever entered it into his mind. Christian, your life is not regulated by the truth that God gave to Adam and Eve. You, you're not responsible for not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Your life is not regulated specifically by the Mosaic law. You are not responsible to go up to Jerusalem three times a year to worship through the Levitical priests and offer sacrifices. Does that mean that this path, the Old Testament doesn't matter? Folks, what book am I preaching through? Ecclesiastes, and where is that? The New Testament or the... It does matter. We do need to understand it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. My point here is you need to rightly understand it from what the author said and then correctly make application. And here I want to use Ecclesiastes as an example. You're there in chapter 5, verse 1 again. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. And then uh, drop down to verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you've all vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Solomon here talks about the house of God. Sometimes we call going to a church building, we call the church building the house of God, don't we? Is Solomon talking about his local church? There is only one house of God that they had. And that was the temple. That was it. The sacrifices, the Levites, and the prayer there. The vows in verses 4 and 5. The making and fulfilling of vows was detailed by God in the Mosaic Law. Numbers chapter 30 in verse 2. You take a vow, these are the offerings you need to do. These are the things that are involved with that. And so Christian, my point with all this is, you must understand what is Solomon saying in its context. Contexts. The book, the passage, and he's speaking from the being in, under the Mosaic Law. You must understand it correctly before you can make correct application. You must have correct interpretation before you can have correct application. Speaking of application... I've got some applications for you from this message today. Number one, benefiting from Scripture is proportionate to your devotion to Scripture. If you invest little effort into your Bible, you will get little help from it. You will get little encouragement from it. You will receive little blessing from it. Is Ecclesiastes a challenging book? Yep, sure is. It is a challenging book. And I'm going to do all I can to help you. God gave us this book. We need to understand it. It's a challenging book. But you've got to put in the effort. We have grandchild number eight coming in December. You know, as perfect as my grandkids are, not a one of them has been born 
a perfect cook. Not a one of those boys, not a one of them has been born a skillful car mechanic. They like cars. Nico, Roman, they get the little cars, vroom, vroom. You can see those cars fly too when they throw them across the, the room. But they're not born skillful car mechanics. None of us are. None of us are born skillful cooks or skillful car mechanics. But you can learn the basics, can't you? You can learn the basics, and the more you learn, the better you'll be at it. To the result that, when it comes to cooking, that you can enjoy a roast with all the trimmings because you worked at it, instead of just eating hot dogs and macaroni and cheese all the time. I like hot dogs and macaroni and cheese, but I love roast. What about car mechanics? You might say, it's just not something I'm really good at. You can learn some of the basics. Anyone, anyone can learn the basics of how a car, could, how a car functions. And that way, you understand what's going on so that you're not taken advantage of by unscrupulous auto mechanics. So when it comes to being a Christian, you are not born again an instant expert at interpreting scripture. It doesn't happen. It comes with time and with effort. The ability to correct, correctly apply scripture so that you can teach others also. In Hebrews 5, Near the end of that, it says that's what every Christian should aim for. Every Christian should be able, because you're mature, to be able to tell another believer. The more effort you put into it, the more blessed you'll be. I guarantee it. Number two, communication is a gift from God to human beings. It is part of being made in his image. Every person can communicate. And I know there's some of you out there who might say, well, my cat, my dog can communicate. Our cat was communicating with us this, this morning. Our cat clawed its way up our screen door, started tearing down our screen door. But you know what? The cat's just not understanding because every time we say, now, Winnie, please be a nice cat. Don't get on the screen door. And what's the cat say? Yes, Mr. Greenfield. No. What's the cat say? Meow. That's what the cat does. That's all it can do. It can't communicate. We've threatened the cat. We've, well, we've never withheld food. We've never kicked the cat. We've yelled at the cat. I've slammed the door at the cat. It still keeps going on the screen door. Cats are instinctive. They hear us come out in the mudroom and Meow, because the food bowl is out in the garage. It knows that's where the food is. Your dog's the same way, and so is every other animal. Human beings can communicate. We can put words together. We can give expression to thought. We can worship God with our minds and our hearts. But sin changed all that. Read James 3, verses 9 to 12. With the mouth, we bless our God, and with the same mouth, what else can we do? We can curse our brother. My brother, and these things ought not to be, James says. How does that happen? Because of sin. When you trust Jesus Christ for salvation, he washes your sins away. He gives you the desire to use the gift of communication to help others and to glorify God.
Number three. Number three might be perhaps one of the more controversial ones for me to throw down here today. Your Bible is your greatest earthly treasure. This after I just told my wife, roses are red, violets are blue, and all that. Am I saying, boy, this is awkward, isn't it? Let's not do that. That's not right for us to do that. I love my wife and I love scripture, but will my wife always be with me? Could the Lord take her home before he takes me home? We could do that with grandchildren and children. We can do that with money and jobs. We can do that with everything, can't we? And what will always be with you through every circumstance? The Word of God. And let's, let's not make it impersonal as if it's some kind of, you know, thing. This is the Hebrews 4.12, the living Word of God. This is how you hear God's voice and how he speaks to you every day throughout the day. This is your greatest earthly treasure because he teaches you how to live in every situation, how to have life, how to live life. He gives promises that comfort and sorrow, promises that inform your prayers, Promises that should control how we live. Last, number four. God has entrusted to you a ministry to certain people. God entrusted a ministry to Solomon. His ministry was to the entire nation of Israel. And he was the the speaker to that assembly. You don't have to have the gifts and abilities as Solomon did, in order to effectively minister to the Lord. You don't even have to have the number of people. God gives ten talents, some five, some three, some one. What does God require? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. And Christian, the Holy Spirit has given you at least one spiritual gift to use to help Christ's body, to help Christ's body here. And he's also sovereignly placed you in the family that you're in. He sovereignly put you where you're living right now with the people that you interact with so that you can minister to them. These are the people that God wants you to minister to. The question isn't, when will you have the opportunity to minister to someone? That is not the question. The question is, are you faithfully ministering? Are you faithfully ministering to those that God has put in your life? Solomon's goal, I want to teach my people how to live a God-focused life in a sin-cursed world. And he did this through writing this book. What is your goal? Well, the people that God has put in your life. What is your goal? Or are you just kind of cruising through life Going from one thing to the next. That's not, that's not why God saved you, Christian. He saved you for a lot of reasons, one of which is to serve him and his people. To preach the gospel to the lost and help Christians to grow. 
learn this book, put it into practice, you'll be a better servant of the Lord. Let's pray.